Hey, welcome to the one and only Game Dev Show, your weekly dose of game creators. I'm Kaylee Hurst, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Luke Greenaway. Luke, how are you? I'm good, Kaylee. I uh, I thought you were going to forget my name then. Oh. <laughs> I think sometimes I pause too long, and it's as though I haven't remembered people's names. Yeah, no, it's, it's just fine. For it's fine. I was like, come on, you've got it, Kaylee. You can do it. Lucas Grenwis. Did I get it? Yeah. Lucas Greenaway. Greenaway. I got it, got it, got it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is another episode. We had Adam Campbell on this week. We say it every week, but he was a fantastic guest. Right now, he's the director of product at Azumi and one of the co-founders of Pock and Play. He's also a jury member for the BAFTAs. He's been named by GamesIndustry.biz, Future Talent of the Games Industry, multiple awards. It was a really cool conversation. I loved hearing about Pock and Play. That was amazing. What was your favorite part, Luke? Mm. Yes, yeah, mad. When you like list off his like accolades, and he's so young as well, still. Uh, but yeah, like you said, yeah, Pock and Play for me was a huge. It's incredible. Like this initiative really encouraged people after listening to the episode to check out their website. I also love listening about his career and his journey within the video games industry to be a director of product, obviously be on games industry business, like people to watch. And like you said, also being a BAFTA jury member and actually having a say in who, you know, which titles and which developers should be awarded is, yeah, it's just incredible how much he's achieved at such a young age. Yeah, it was a pleasure having him on. It really was. Uh, Let's get into it. Adam, I would love to start. I want to hear how you were as a child, what you were interested in, what got you interested in games. Sure. I mean, I I love to think like that was like any other kid out there, you know, just love to have fun. And I also played games a lot in my spare time. But when it came to my ambitions in terms of career and what I wanted to do I was always into science I was quite a geeky kid I loved all sorts of science I love space and robots and technology but it's when I was 11 years old I started to slowly but surely change my mind I started to be quite captured by how how realistic games were becoming and also how they could meld art and science and music and then I, I realized that actually games is a very technical subject. It's a very expressive field. And I thought all of my interest in technology and science could be applied to games. So it was a bit of a eureka moment for an 11-year-old. That's what set me on the path. Did you study games? I did. I studied a course which was computer science with games technology. And it was one of the few games courses that were out there at the time. And it basically covered all of the usual computer science type topics, such as programming and theory of computing, databases. But it also had topics which were more specific to games. So, you know, how do you make game engines? You know, how how do these kind of like different components come together? And many of the projects were based around games as well. What was the game that gave you that eureka moment? Was there a moment where you were playing something... And you're like, God, this is this is amazing. There is. It was actually Shenmue on the Dreamcast. Oh, uh, was it the forklift bit? 
because that's so where that's, I stopped playing. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, that was a legendary moment. In its own way. But um, to be honest, from from the opening, I had never seen anything like that before. I, I don't think at the time there was a in-game cinematic that was quite as impressive as what they were showing there. It was like the beginning of a epic martial arts film, mm. and I, I kind of started to realize that you know games are obviously fun and they've been you know looking better and better but they can also be this really powerful medium to communicate stories and emotions and you know i've seen things like facial animation for the first time at least proper facial animation and i just thought to myself you know if there's only way i could be part of this yeah i love that it's so funny because yeah i got to the forklift bit in shimnu and i remember being like yeah this isn't for me <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just stopped playing. Have you played the recent, um, the recent one? Yes, I have. I felt oh, like I was waiting about twenty years for that game. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably were. Too. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. Um, I mean, has gaming progressed as much in that space of time? Yeah, I mean, it it's a very strange game in the sense that it felt like literally if they'd created Shenmue three straight after Shenmue two. That's exactly how it would have been. But the big difference between then and now is Unreal Engine. So um, (laughs) it was quite strange to play a game with fairly outdated mechanics. But in its own way, it had that sort of charm. And I think uh, Mew Suzuki, who I guess is a bit of an influence for me as well, he he really wanted to capture that Shenmue feeling. Mm. And um, he managed to do that within Shenmue 3. But I do hope that we perhaps get a few of the mechanics we've built over the last 20 years into the next game, should they come around. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be another. I'm sure there will be another Shenmue. Um, I guess I was wondering, you don't always see people able to study something in school and then actually transition that into a career in that field. Mm-hmm. How did that look for you? Like, How did you transition what you were learning into a career? That's a great question, actually. So if I go back a little bit, you know, back to the sort of 11-year-old kid I was, I had no idea how to get into games. It was this really kind of distant pipe dream. I barely knew there was a UK video games industry as well. So it was even more kind of like mysterious to me. But one thing that I heard or I discovered was that there were a lot of programmers in video games. And that was one of the roles which could potentially get you into that sort of field so I spent a lot of time thinking about how I could get to uni you know it was nine years later when I'd go to uni and I kind of resigned myself to knowing that I was going to study computer science it's like I have to do computer science and I'll become a programmer and so on and so forth of course as the years went on I realized that programming wasn't the only subject but university could perhaps give me kind of like a good set of skills which I could adapt and utilize later on. So when I went to university, I I did think that I wanted to go into programming. I've always found programming, coding, game engines really interesting. But I think in terms of my overall goals, I wanted to do something a bit more project-based or a bit more visionary, like a, you know, producer or director. So I thought, well, maybe I could use these skills to find an entry-level type of role, whatever that happened to be, and then go from there. I think that's basically what happened. Although the biggest foundation I had in in getting into the games industry was having a work placement. And I think aside from the skills that you gain within a a degree course, having the ability to actually go into a games environment and see just how diverse in terms of the skill sets there are, to see how it operates was really a big boost for me. Where were you placed? 
that was at Jagex. So that was my first ever job in games. Oh, okay. I saw before Jagex, you contributed to game trailers. Is that crazy? Yeah, right. Community um, admin. Yeah, so before Twitter was a really big thing, I was definitely on the forums <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just love to talk about games. I mean, it's one thing playing them, but also be able to get involved in the discourse around yeah. sort of games and games development. And, you know, for me, that was also my connection into the video games industry. I felt like I could be a little bit more involved beyond just my own television. But yeah, it was great. I mean, it was at the time... It was one of the most active games websites in the world, top five. The forums had thousands and thousands of people from all over the world. And uh, I I love to write blogs. I obviously love to watch the video content and the trailers. And it was a great experience. I always loved being involved in community. You touched on your Twitter, which I had fun going through as I was researching you. (laughs) One of the things on there was a gymnastics video that I have to know more about. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, are you okay talking about that? It was so yeah. cool. Yeah, um, so yeah, obviously games people do have interests outside games. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and I've always been a very sporty person. And one of those sports, the other being tennis, one of the sports was gymnastics. And I actually got into gymnastics as an adult, as a young adult. And I loved watching on TV and I thought, well, what if I could do this myself? And lo and behold, I, I signed up to a, a gymnastics class many years ago. And I, I enjoyed that for several years, but I stopped, you know, because, you know, life changes, moving around. And I recently took that back up again. I took up gymnastics in the era where we now have Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I was, so I was using social media as kind of like a form of accountability. You know, if I, if I show some progress one week, then I have to show more progress the next week. That's why I started posting those videos. So is your favorite stuff like, because that video, we're going to drive so much traffic to your Twitter now, but <laughs> <laughs> no, the video is sort of like a handsprings and like a floor routine. Is that what you like to do? Yeah. So generally tumbling. So backflips, round off, somersault. I love all of that stuff. I did I manage to myself last year as well. Bit of a freak accident, but I'm better now. So here's to the future. <laughs> I love the spirit. I think too many people stop being a kid at a certain point and are like, well, I'm not going to try a new thing because I may be bad at it. I love the spirit of I'm just going to try this thing. And it may not be fun at first because I might be pretty bad at it. And then continuing to try and get good and have a new hobby from that. I think that's great. Yeah, Not games related, but I do like it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) That's awesome. So then post-Jagex, can you take us through the path from Jagex to now Azumi? Yes. So I guess after Jagex, Jagex was my workplace in which I did after my second year. And I went back to university. But the thing is, once you've been in games, it's hard to feel satisfied not being in games anymore. And I thought, well, most people just complete their course and then they go on to find whatever job they can. But I thought, well, what if I could find some experience I could do in between my return to university and, and graduation? So I found a job at Sega where I did functionality testing. Mm-hmm. So this was my first opportunity to work on console games. So lots of popular Sega IPs, whether it's Monkey Ball, Virtual Tennis, different platforms, 360, Nintendo 3DS. So um, that was a good experience for me to just start to get involved in different types of content. 
following Sega, I had a little bit of a lull. So I was kind of like post-university. My initial experience was over and I had to have a little bit of think about where I could go to next. And that's where I actually started to go into the casino games industry for a little bit. So I was there for a company called um, OpenBet, which is now part of SG Digital. And I was there for two years. I was doing QA engineering, had a chance to work with a lot of emerging technologies at the time, like HTML5, worked on hundreds of different types of casino games like slot machines, social casino games, which you had on social media platforms. That was a great experience. I learned a lot about some of the new technologies. It was a different type of games, which I never thought I'd work in, but I was definitely up for the opportunity. But after that, I knew that I wasn't going to be satisfied in that industry in the long term. So that's when I started to pivot into production. And I think going back to my initial ambitions where I wasn't too sure whether I wanted to be a programmer or what I wanted to do, I then thought, well, if I can get an entry-level producer role, which I did at Miniclip, then that would set me on a new path. So you know with Miniclip and that, like that entry-level role as like an associate producer, I know quite a few people who work in like QA and feel like sometimes they're going to be stuck in QA forever and they really try to get the producer gig. How did you do it? How did you... That conversation with Miniclip, I suppose, and that interview process, what were the qualities they saw in you that they thought, yeah, this is great, you'll make a great producer? I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, I did a little bit of research into what the crucial aspects of the role would be. I also think that the environment I was working in previously really helped prepare me for that. So there's often a a bit of a stereotype that if you're in QA, you're kind of like locked away in a little (laughs) room somewhere and... You're not really involved in development, but it really is a key developer support role. In that developer support role, you're working really closely with multiple members of the team. You might be working in an environment where there are different forms of production and software methodologies, agile methodologies, you know, different project management techniques. And just by being there and working within those processes, you can start to learn what producers and project managers actually do. And you'll be involved in those production cycles. So I was able to translate a lot of what I had learned from my environment and from collaborating with project managers and producers and product people into what the new role for me would be. And even though I had no production experience as a producer, I did know how the process worked. So I guess I was actually quite a good candidate. Because a lot of people think that, you know, when they leave and they go into QA and say outside of video games, it's almost harder to come back. Do you think it actually helped you being at OpenBet for a couple of years, that experience, and then bringing that experience back on board when you had the interview at Miniclip? It did, for sure. And because the casino games industry, even though it's still in games, I'd say the industry has a lot more in common with more developed technology industries that have been around Mm. a bit longer in terms of the people it attracts, the type of processes they use. And I realized that I was actually in quite an advantageous position because I understood so many different methodologies for making stuff and I kind of like knew all of the various roles and components, you know, whether it's a functionality tester all the way to what does the technical architect do? I was able to utilize that experience and learn in a way that I might not have been able to in other games companies. So, um, you know, in a sense, it did give me a competitive advantage. And one of the bits of advice I often give to people who, want to work in games is that 
even if your first role isn't in the traditional video games industry, or even if you do have to leave at some point, there are other industries which are on the intersection of games that you can go into. And you can also learn lots of new skills, which will make you even better once you go back. After you left Uniclip, you went off to Hopster, is that correct? Yes, that's right. One of the things that often happens in games is you might be made redundant. Um, yeah. That was the case for me at the time. <laughs> and um, it wasn't totally unexpected. I did have a little bit of time to to realise that I, I'd need to change roles. But it was a while before I got my, my next job after that. Miniclip had a major acquisition. They were bought by Tencent, which is an amazing deal for them. But obviously, as the company started to change its focus, I had to start to look on for a new role. In my search, I found it quite difficult to find the right role for me. And I, I wasn't a particular, particularly fussy person. But sometimes you don't get to take on the roles that you really want to. You know, even if you have a, a huge bank of skills, you're one of many candidates and many people want to have those roles as well. So I decided to be a little bit more adaptable to other potential experiences. And I started to realise that there was this kind of like new emerging industry where it started to kind of cross the, the gaming industry with also other entertainment industries such as video on demand and TV. And Hopster was one of these unique platforms where they wanted to bring in games and TV and video for kids in all in one ecosystem. And I realised that taking my games experience to that organisation would actually be a very good fit for me. Well, and that kind of brings you naturally to Azumi, right? Because my experience with Azumi has been exactly what you're saying. It's a kind of multiverse for content for kids, whether that's games or video, entertainment, books, audiobooks. My kids are massive fans of it. And so I'm, I want to hear, I guess, A, I want to hear how you then ended up at Izumi. And I also want to hear about your role there. What does it mean to be director of product? And I think what does it mean for product to have a seat at the executive table? Sure. So obviously by that point, I'd been working in games for a while. And my focus had been pretty much around kids' games for the last four years up to that point. Mm -hmm. And with this emerging industry, Hopster was no longer the only player in the field. Obviously, Hopster is just one of many because, you know, you have companies like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, BBC are doing their own thing, Disney. So are these, all of these kids' entertainment platforms, these kind of like cross-media products. And Azumi was one of these other emerging product within the UK industry. And when I initially joined Azumi, it was because I wanted to refocus my skills more on games specifically. So I knew that they had a, a particular need for someone to come in and really boost the offering in that place. And obviously, with all of my experience with production and games publishing and licensing, it is a skill that I could most definitely add to their team. And since then, my, my role has adapted, it's changed. It's diversified. I've now taken on more responsibility across the whole product. And that was just a, a natural progression based on what the company required at the time. So yeah, it's been a great experience so far. In terms of my role specifically, so you know, as you're probably aware, product roles do vary from place to place. So depending mm -hmm. on the company size, their focus, what you do might be different, even if you have a similar job title. 
But for me, I manage two key areas. So one of those is the strategy behind product development. So we do apps, games, video on demand and more. And all of these need to be progressing in order to satisfy the wider business goals. I have a view of that and a process of helping to develop our products, which perhaps other members of the team don't have. And then the other side of my role is managing the processes that we use for both projects and product management. So in that, I lead a team who implements those processes across our fast-growing engineering and design functions. That's great. That covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? It does, definitely. Yeah. Because we're a small company, it's in a sense, it's an advantage that you get to cover more ground and be involved in lots of different elements of the business. At the same time, as the company grows really fast, it's where you need to start thinking about where to best focus those skills and those your attention. I always love it when I get to try new things at work. Like something comes up and it's like, who can give this a shot? Eh, Kaylee can give it a shot. Uh, but you're right. The downside of that is you lose the ability to really hone in on one particular thing and make it the best it possibly can be at times. That's true. Well, I wanted to ask about the BAFTAs. So you're a jury member, which I have to admit, before I started working with Luke, I didn't know what the BAFTAs were and I had to ask him. So just in case uh, our audience is in North America, like me and may not be aware of the BAFTAs, will you explain that and what it's what the experience of being a jury member is like? Sure. I actually tend to find a lot of people don't really know what BAFTA does. So um, that's completely fine. <laughs> and, and BAFTA is often, often associated with film and TV. So when you mention BAFTA games, people are like, oh, BAFTA is involved in games. But BAFTA, they're a leading arts charity and they're focused on championing creativity, opportunity and social change. And they want to do this through the power of, you know, all entertainment mediums. So film, games and television. Aside from the awards, they have a lot of programs that they run in order to try and nurture talent within our industries. So they're one of the biggest advocates for creativity. I was actually inducted into the Academy in 2017, where I became a member. That was a great time. But in terms of my role as a jury member, so the juries in BAFTA are very diverse. It consists of BAFTA members, but also other people who are practitioners within the industry. And with that, we're given an opportunity to review submissions for the Game Awards, kind of like shortlisting games, which are examples of excellence within their field. And then juries will review and assess shortlisted titles. So we'll be given a list of games within a particular category. For example, one I was involved in about a year ago was Debut Game. And it'll be your responsibility as a juror to review those games. You'll come back to the board, which is basically a long, long meeting. And you'll kind of like discuss and analyse what, you know, what the kind of like pros and cons of that game were. So the process is quite rigorous, but it's also a fair process and the voting is in secret. And as a result of those juries, one of those titles will be voted to win the award. And it's a great way to recognise talent. How often does it happen that you vote for a game to win and it doesn't? Does it annoy you? <laughs> that was kind of my question too. Like, what have the big battles been? Was there a game that you were like, it has to win? And it didn't? Um, I think... It's a bit of a tale of two halves. So honestly, all of the games that are shortlisted, they all deserve to win because you know, if they didn't get to that stage, then 
you know, why wouldn't they? Even bolder than that, I think everyone deserves to be recognised for the creativity they put into games. You never know how many days or nights people spend on their on their creative craft. And I think, you know, everyone deserves to be appreciated. So I've, I've never felt bitter about a certain game winning over another. You know, no way. But there have been times when games I voted for haven't gone on to win the award. Some cases they've gone to win other categories. But in other cases, you know, it's just one of those things. You can't give multiple awards in the same category to, you know, every game. But, you know, I guess that's part of the process. I think it's cool that you um, you have such power <laughs> um, to um, decide these games' fate. But I guess with that, do you ever feel guilty when you award it to a game and you feel like, oh, but that other dev team were a lot smaller? Or I think there's a tendency for people to look to awards for validation. Mm. And whilst awards can be a great form of promotion and, you know, it's a, it's a really good pass on the back for doing good work, mm. I don't think awards should be the be-all and end-all of, you know, of creativity and of, of talent and of, you know, winning. To be in the games industry and to release products, you're already winning. Even if you're taking a break from the industry, you know, you've done great work. So even if the game doesn't win, I think the visibility that all of the shortlisted games can get from BAFTA is, you know, it's a great opportunity. And if your game didn't win, then, you know, you can go on to the next thing and maybe it'll win an award in the future. But even if you don't win an award, it's just great to know that people are really enjoying your games. That's a great ethos. That's a great approach. I was going to ask you uh, another question about this. I don't want to get too hung up on the BAFTA thing. But for me, when I before I buy a game, I will read reviews a lot user reviews more than I actually read uh, critic reviews because I find critic reviews often they you know like big franchises seem to consistently score high marks um, regardless of innovation <laughs> innovation comes up in nearly every single episode I'm sorry Kaylee um, <laughs> it's okay Maybe that's our theme is innovation in games innovation in games I mean it's I rant about yeah. it but um so, but then I look at like, you know, like user reviews, player reviews on Steam. Um, I try not to use Metacritic as much because of review bombing is a bit more prevalent on that site. But I suppose my question to you is, what do you think carries the bigger value? Is it the critic reviews or is it the player reviews? Okay, well, I think with critic reviews, and I, I know that nobody can be perfectly impartial or perfectly objective, but what I'd expect from a critic review is to, you know, in a obje- as objective um, as possible way, to look at the fundamental aspects of what makes a game good. How do the mechanics come together? If it's a sequel, how do those mechanics improve over the previous title? You know, when it comes to storytelling compared to what other games have come before, and I know that critics have obviously played a lot of games in this sort of environment, it's good to have those kind of professional level comparisons between different pieces of media and I think those can be quite valuable but at the same time the end user the majority of people who play games are the ones who will write those user reviews and it does go to show that people do have very diverse opinions and some of those opinions are driven by emotion in a way that you might have you know less expectation of that to be an aspect of of reviewing in a professional website and I think that's also a very valid way to review something too you know how does it make you feel i think all reviews have value to them yeah so true and kaylee's gonna kill me because i know she really wants to talk about pop play so 
you've been lucky enough to work at a lot of video game companies, but in particular, especially over the last few years, obviously you're working at Azumi at the moment and Miniclip prior to that, and sorry, Hopson and Miniclip prior to that. They have a focus on the younger demographic, generally from the titles that they make. How do you think, how has it changed younger people's consumption of video games over the last few years? And what trends do you see being created moving forwards from a video game creation? Cool, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, like, like a lot of industries, the games industry goes in many cycles. And often that's influenced by new platforms, new trends and kind of like what a popular type of game is at the time. If I just go back very quickly, originally, I guess the, the main way to play games was through consoles and PCs. And then we had the dot-com boom. With the dot-com boom, you know, there were lots of websites which became really successful, others which you know completely disappeared from the face of the earth. But one of the areas which did continue to grow was in gaming. Because, you know, suddenly anyone with a, a computer or a screen could suddenly play casual games in their home. And that was a good example of how the games industry was really radically changed by the internet and changed by new accessibility to platforms. And I think we've had a kind of a, like a similar thing in the games industry again with app stores. So if you think about the last five or so years, with the growth of Google Play, Apple's App Store, mobile devices, suddenly there's almost endless choice when it comes to mobile games and casual games, which you can download on your device, most of them for free as well. And that's definitely made a huge shift in the industry. And then I guess something which has been a branch of that as well, from social media apps, such as Facebook and Snapchat, I guess slightly older kids and even adults are now getting involved in instant games. So now social media platforms can provide a form of gaming, which is very fast, very accessible. And this is very different from before. I mean, nowadays, probably the biggest part of the video games industry is driven through mobile devices. And obviously, kids are influenced by that too. That's a great answer. Thank you. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Kaylee, please. Well, now I don't have to break up with you as a, as a co-host. <laughs> uh, we can keep doing the podcast. But I do want to talk about Pac and Play, mm-hmm. which you founded over a year ago, right? In 2019? Yes. That's right. So I want to talk about kind of the initiative, why you founded it, what you felt like you accomplished in that first year, what was still hard, and then really how that conversation has changed in the past few months in the wake of George Floyd and all the attention that's now being paid to Black Lives Matter movement. Sure. So Bog in Play, it was officially launched in February of last year and mm-hmm. born out of an ambition or even hunger, I guess, to ensure that we as an industry can make significant moves to improving representation and inclusion of racial minorities in games, both in terms of like the, the products you see but also those working behind the scenes as well. So the actual practitioners who are making those games. I had my own unique journey into the industry and my own challenges, you know, both before and after joining. And one of the interesting things is that I I never saw a black person working in games for the entire time that I aspired to get into video games. I just didn't know that we existed in the industry, which is quite a weird experience. Uh, I know experience is not shared by everyone. And then even when I got into the industry, 
I was the only black person I knew of that worked in games, which is so strange. <laughs> um, so strange. It is. It's really strange. And it's, it's a perspective that I know that a lot of people in this country or in the West in general won't have a lived experience of. Now, I surely wasn't the only black person in the industry, but because we're such a small minority, I think it's around 2% in the UK industry, even today in 2020. So it's very unlikely. Yeah, exactly. So it's very unlikely that, you know, with that small minority that you'll see other people, that they'll be somewhere, but they're probably not going to be in a prominent position. And obviously social media is a relatively new phenomena. So, you know, I didn't have the advantage of social media to try and seek out people that perhaps had similar experiences to me. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of the big driving forces for Pop and Play. I've been involved in diversity campaigning and activism for quite a while now, but it got to a point where I thought, you know what, I could actually establish not just an organisation, but a movement which could start to address this issue. And I always like to say that we're not just a pressure group, like we really want to combat the systemic challenges that affect diversity inclusion. Why do you think, you know, video games in particular, that's such a, a damning statistic, isn't it? 2% in the UK. Why do you think there is this marginalization? Why do you think there is such a low percentage of um, black people within the video games industry? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, <laughs> and part, part of me says, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, on something like this, like talk as long as you can. This is so yeah. important. But, but in all seriousness, so... If you look at, I guess, film and TV, they've been around for a lot longer and they've had their own long-running issues of diversity inclusion. There were points, I guess, you know, maybe even in, in the 1970s where you probably wouldn't see a single black family on TV. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I like to remind people that there were still blackface minstrel shows on the BBC in my parents' lifetime, which is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But since then, you know, as an industry, it has tried to make steps to bring more people of different backgrounds onto the screen. Even though that the TV and film industry is still majority white and majority middle class, there have been improvements, whether it's funding for marginalised people, whether it's, a, you know, just a drive to try and make more diverse storytelling because there might be new audiences, or maybe it's a mandate state broadcasters like the BBC have to improve their statistics there. With the video games industry, even though it's a very a very young industry, it's quite liberal in terms of, you know, a lot of people's politics and views, as many people who work in games probably know, it's also very young. It's a very recent industry. So the legacy of trying to improve diversity and inclusion that you've seen in perhaps the last, I don't know, 100 years of film has not been in the video games industry yet. So we've only really just started to try and address that issue. We've made a lot of strides with women in games, and there's been a big push to try and diversify studios and games with more access for women, more women as characters. But a lot of people tend to think, okay, well, if we get more women into the industry, and when I say women, I don't mean gender minorities, which are also excluded, they kind of feel like the diversity question is now done. And they often forget that, you know, there are other marginalised people. So we are talking about ethnic minorities and gender minorities. And there have been no initiatives around trying to improve that. And I think the industry also doesn't realise how detrimental it can be to their businesses. 
if they don't have ethnic diversity or racial diversity in their teams as well. There's a very good economic argument for including more people in your organization. Like we can talk about skill shortages and we always want to find the best of the best. If we always look in the same circles, if we use nepotism, we're always going to exclude people. And we also need to think about the intersectional challenges that people do have. In the UK, about 60% of all Black, Asian and minority ethnic people live below the poverty line. So if you live below the poverty line, and that's like 60% of you, how likely is it that you're going to go into an industry which doesn't seem very inclusive, doesn't seem to have the structures in place to encourage people to be there, an industry that perhaps doesn't even try or even mm. recognise you exist. So, you know, the intersection between things like race and class and gender are also really important. And again, going back to class issues, if like the film and TV industry, video games is mostly white and middle class, it's obviously going to exclude more people from those marginalised backgrounds. I mean, it's quite a long answer, but I guess uh, there are lots of kind of intersectional challenges at every single level which prevent people from getting into the industry. It's frustrating. I think when you like use the comparison with film, I, I, the thing that frustrates me, the video games industry, it is a lot younger and it is very liberal. It's frustrating to hear that statistic at 2% because you think we should know better from looking at other industries and be more proactive. Um, exactly. I'll say one, one advantage there is that you know, when you have an industry which is younger and a bit more a bit more open to change out the box, mm. it does mean that we might get to a better situation quicker than perhaps the film or TV industries did back in their day. Yeah, I hope so. One of the questions I was going to ask, and this is quite a, I don't know, this is because obviously you work there, but like Azumi is one of, you know, the fastest growing media companies for kids. And mm-hmm. at the same time, kids are adopting video games at an earlier and earlier age. Um, And you could actually say that video games are now the most influential form of media for young children. Do you think video games has a responsibility now to educate kids on racism and inequality? And as as the second part of that question be, as director of product, what are Azumi's plans in this area? Okay, cool. I believe we definitely do have a responsibility. We have such a big cultural, economic... Yeah, every kind of influence you can imagine the video games industry does actually have. So yes, there's definitely responsibility. And I don't think this is to say that systemic oppression or diversity needs to be kind of like a political point in mm. our media. And I know that sometimes when you have diversity and inclusion, there are people who perceive it to be some kind of like political agenda. I think, you know, the important thing is, you know, if our content really does truly reflect the diversity of people and their experiences, then naturally it should help to bring a better understanding. If you have people who are working together and collaborating on achieving that mission, hopefully that does actually mean that real change can come about. But in terms of Azumi ourselves, so, you know, Azumi, which is now part of a significantly bigger organisation, because we acquired another kids company called Da Vinci Media towards the end of last year. And the great thing about both companies is that we are fundamentally built on social responsibility. And all of our content, we want it to be diverse and age appropriate, stuff which can be educational or games and media that can just be fun for kids, but obviously reflect a huge range of experiences. So I think in general, part of the Azumi ethos is that we always keep this in mind with our products, whether it's stuff we make, our commissions or our content licenses. And 
we do hope that you can get a bit of a different experience from Azumi as you would would do from some other media organizations. That's great. I think, um, yeah, I completely agree with the responsibility with video games. I think there is this feeling that video game players can be a major part of the issue with how toxic they are and the language they use as a normal form of communication in particular and obviously not singling out the genre like first person shooters often come up as this feeding ground for toxicity and hate and how do developers how do they what can they do so obviously it's their responsibility but what should they be doing with these communities of players to eliminate racism and discrimination within their own communities yeah it's also a great question as a person who's been involved in community management I've been in the development of products I've also been a consumer I can definitely see how these different groups of people interact and you know how the how the story can often play out but I think one of the most important things when it comes to fostering diversity and inclusion is accountability I think from the players perspectives I know that there are lots of players who are very vocally against anything that doesn't really match what they are used to mm. but I would like to think that it can be a vocal minority. I do think most people in society like diversity, you know, new things, different things, different experiences. After all, when you're consuming products and consuming content, if it's all the same, there comes a point where you do get bored. People like myself, a black person from the UK, you know, I have certain experiences which I might want to see reflected in my games too. And my wishes are equally as important as theirs. But in terms of accountability for video games companies is taking seriously things such as online abuse and how they represent different cultures within their games and the sort of messaging that they put out. And I think recently, after the recent Black Lives Matter movement and the shock that George Floyd's death sent through everyone, including video games industry, there's a recognition that, you know what, it's not good enough to just make products for your community, but then stay silent on the issues that also affect them. And I think now companies have got that sort of recognition. They can start to make steps to make things better for their communities too. Mm. Yeah, I hope that I really do hope they do. I hope it's not just a flash in the pan thing. I hope it's like a consistent, because I read this thing about like video game companies, they'll ban cheaters, for example, by like the tens of thousands. You've got like a really toxic community. Like why aren't they getting banned as well? <laughs> they should be banning their IPs from logging onto like PSN and things like this, in my opinion. But you're right, Adam. I think... The past few months, you saw video game companies participate in Black Lives Matter in a really significant way that most companies haven't, I mean, they haven't done in regards to Black Lives Matter before, but really any form of publicly saying, we stand for this and not that. And it was a really refreshing thing to see. I can't remember which website it was, but one of the websites like made a list of, hey, here are the companies in gaming that have taken a clear stance and said, we're a part of this movement. We're making donations. We're making these efforts. Here's what we're doing in a way that I don't think we've seen before. Yeah, I completely agree. I do think, yeah, part of that is the fact that, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned the general political leanings and the youth of the industry, but I think in general, with a lot of games people, we're quite receptive to what's going on in society. And I think that's definitely fed into the response from games companies. Mm. Also, compared to some other industries, we are very, very, very kind of like online social. Mm. Right. Um, 
it's always um, impossible to find the games person who's not on Twitter in some way, yeah. shape, or form. Right. <laughs> um, because we're using these sorts of platforms, because games companies are on those platforms, because online communities are also a big part of games, it's very difficult to ignore the issue. And the same in the same platform, the same community where you know people are suffering systemic violence from authorities or dying due to systemic racism is the same environment where they're talking about video games and console launches and party time. It's like, if you can exist in this same environment, you've got to take the good with the bad, take the whole community. And I think that's something that's also helped us recognize it. I look at big corporations and I think, well, God, like money makes the world go round. Why doesn't everyone who works at a bank just stop working? until things get resolved like i said it comes back to that major cultural and economic influence and Mm. there are people there are corporations who hold power and one of the best ways to show you care is by using that power some of that is changing the narrative and some of that is also using those economic resources to help those who may be in need i listened to your podcast um and pock and play the episode one I thought it was amazing, by the way. I thought it was excellent. It was great to hear. It was very emotional, like very passionate, um, educational as well. I got the sense that you felt that the games industry had improved in ways in terms of marginalization, but obviously has so far to go from this apathetic. Apathy is still like a strong term, but is an appropriate term for a lot of what's still going on within the industry in terms of response. I guess my my question, my long, long question to you is when it comes to marginalization, discrimination, sexism, racism, like how have your views of the games industry changed since your early days at Jagex? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll credit you for a very good question. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been reflecting on this quite a lot recently. It's worth saying that I never wanted to get into the games industry to be an activist or a campaigner. I was just interested in making games and making experiences. I have a bit of a natural tendency towards seeing society improve and want to see how I can get involved in that process. But, you know, honestly, I I didn't even realise how much of a problem it was until I got there and until I started to see those challenges in front of me. So obviously, you know, I had that issue of being the black person who didn't see myself in games. But at the time, that was perhaps the only problem I could recognise. But yeah, I've, I've seen there are so many, you know, issues which cross different forms of marginalization, you know, whether it's gender, sexism, racism. I've also started to get a better understanding of what may or may not work when it comes to solutions. And I think I can give a, maybe a couple of examples. So, for example, a lot of people say we need a seat at the table. And I've realized that actually just having a seat at the table is not enough in itself to drive change. Another potential example I could give is that challenges are, in fact, very intersectional. A lot of people think about diversity and inclusion as we need more women, we need more black people, we need more Asian people. But actually, it's far more than that. You need to look at the relationship between race, class, gender, disability, and how all of those different factors can lead to different outcomes for people. And that's something I've I've definitely learned a lot, even more so over the last few years. And I hope with that knowledge and with understanding people's experiences in different contexts, that's something I can use to try and help improve the industry and hopefully other people can too. I guess so great. if people are hearing this and they want to know how to help Pock and Play or how to get involved, um, how do people how do people contribute? How do they help? So, I mean, 
one of the first things you can do is follow us <laughs> at Pocking Play on Twitter. Have a super active Twitter following and Twitter community, which is probably where most of our activities at the moment. We do have our website at pockplay.org. If you want to help or get involved, feel free to email us, contact at pockplay.org. You can also sign up to our mailing list. And for corporations who might be interested in helping us on a wider basis, we are now starting to talk about potential sponsorship packages. That sponsorship will go into various initiatives throughout the industry to help with diversity and inclusion on different levels. Fantastic. I could speak to you about loads of these things for ages. Um, to be honest, I could just listen. I know. That's, I, that's when I stopped. I was just listening to the podcast instead of hosting it while, yeah, while I was I could, talking. I could tell you. I was, just, I was like, oh, Kaylee, <laughs> Kaylee needs to speak. Kaylee needs to speak. Even I was sitting there like, God, she's not speaking. Um, no, honestly, like, if I'm being completely honest, it's one of those things where I don't even feel educated enough to have an opinion that could be validated, you know? And it's just, A, it's great to like have you on the show. And it's great to hear, not just about Pock and Play, but actually the show's about people's careers and contributions in the video games industry. And it's it's fascinating to hear your challenges and what you're trying to do proactively for the greater good. Yeah, it's definitely been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Yeah, thank you. All right, another episode of the Game Dev Show in the books, the one and only Game Dev Show. <laughs> uh, that was a really, really good conversation with Adam. Luke, do you have fun? Yeah, I, do you know what? I I loved it. And I, it was great hearing about Adam's journey and um, talking about diversity and inclusion and marginalization at the end. And, you know, it's a topic we could literally talk about forever. Yeah. On, on that note, I think people, if you get an opportunity, please check out Poc Play, uh, Poc in Play, pocplay.org. Yeah, Google them. Go on their site. They're doing some fantastic stuff. Uh, yeah, check it out. Um, also, after... You check them out and see how you can get involved. If you want to check out our website and submit a guest, you can go to ptw.com slash the game dev show or email us at game dev show at ptw.com. And on that note, we also need to say that the opinions and views that we express on this show are our own and not necessarily reflective of the companies we work at. I think that's it. Right, Luke? More cool guests coming up. David Eckers from CCP, Alex Joseph from Graffiti Games. We've got some good ones. So I guess until next time, Luke, GG. <laughs> I don't All know right. you really Bye. Say <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you can say GG back. In fact, wouldn't it be rude not to? Yeah, it's not technically a word. How are, it's so funny that you're like you're lecturing me on a video game like technology. Yeah, Luke, say GG now. Game over.